Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. You can schedule a free product tour right now at netsuite.com gold. Well, the big story in the market today is the continued rise in long-term interest rates. The bond market is getting clobbered. The yield on the 10-year was up to just under 1.3% today. It closed at 1.299, so pretty much 1.3%. It was just last month that the yield got to 1% for the first time since COVID, and now yields have increased 30% since then. That may not sound like a lot, but in the world of bonds, that is a huge move. The yield on the 30-year bond that is up to 2.09. We just got above 2 on Friday, and now we're almost at 2.1. In fact, the intraday high was 2.094. So we closed just off the high of the day. So we're seeing this big rise in interest rates. And so far, the only markets that seem affected is the precious metals market. Gold and silver both got hit pretty hard today. They had been up yesterday when our markets were closed for the President's Day holiday, but those gains were surrendered and gold ended up down about $30 on the day. Silver, not nearly as bad. Silver was only down about 13 cents. That's because it was up 40 or 50 cents an ounce earlier this morning before we had this big move in the bond market. And some of that had to do with some of the articles I was reading from SLV or about SLV, the silver ETF, where they were admitting that they were having problems sourcing the physical silver and that they might not actually be able to buy any. And remember, that was part of the goal of the silver squeeze on Reddit was for people to buy a bunch of SLV and force them to buy physical silver that didn't exist. Well, it looked like that might have actually been happening. And so initially... Silver was off to the races, but then it you know, was pulled back into the stable or the horse was based on this big increase in interest rates, which really, I guess, caught the metals market off guard. But the knee jerk response to rising interest rates was to sell gold and silver, which is what happens every time. It's kind of like a reflect, kind of like Pavlov and the dog. You see a big drop in the bond market. You see a spike in interest rates. Oh, you sell gold. Because what the narrative is, and I talked about this in last week's podcast, is that there's a lot of these papers that are floating around Wall Street that this strong economy is going to cause the Fed to raise rates prematurely. Meaning even though they're not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates, they're going to raise them because the economy is just so strong because of all this stimulus that we're going to get surprise tightening. And for some reason, no other markets are being affected. I mean, the stock market is not going down. I mean, the Dow is up today. The other indexes finished the day with slight declines. But if there really is going to be a tightening, a premature tightening, why isn't the stock market getting clobbered, especially the NASDAQ? Because that's what would be the most sensitive, right? Would be these high growth stocks, especially if it is inflation that is driving the the bond market, which I think it is. In fact, I've been talking about the oil price. Oil prices 
we're above $60 a barrel today. As I've been predicting on this podcast, we closed above 60 today. In fact, we went above 60 yesterday when our market was closed. And today we closed above 60 here. Um, this is the highest it's been again since the collapse in the pandemic. But as I said, we're headed to 80, probably $100 a barrel this year. And in fact, look at how the inflation sensitive stocks behave because I own a lot of stocks that aren't gold stocks. My oil stocks are up big today. Uh, base metal stocks up big today. My agriculture stocks. So everything that I own that is sensitive to inflation uh, had a big day today with the exception of the mining stocks, gold and silver, uh, which should have had the biggest day of all because inflation is actually good for gold. It's better for gold and gold mining companies and silver than a lot of these other stocks that are rising. And it's because people are not worried that rate hikes are going to, you know, hurt the copper market, you know, or, or the corn market, right? Uh, or the oil market. For some reason, they only think rate hikes are going to hurt the gold market. And they don't think it's going to hurt the stock market where it actually might hurt the most, especially these high growth stocks. High PE stocks historically do not do well during inflation. And that is what's going on. I mean, all this talk about a strong economy forcing the Fed's hand, it ain't a strong economy. It's a weak economy. Now, that doesn't mean we may not get growth in GDP. We might. You print enough money and let Americans spend it, you can goose the GDP uh, by spending printed money. But that is an economic growth. That's just a bubble. And in order to maintain that bubble, the Fed has to keep interest rates at zero. If the Fed does what Wall Street now thinks they're going to surprise the market and do, they're going to undo the recovery. See, I think what people are thinking is that the backup in rates is the result of economic growth that is going to result in higher earnings for corporate America and that therefore those higher earnings somehow will trump the uh, higher rates. Ain't going to happen. That's just wishful thinking. This whole market is built on a foundation of cheap money. The earnings, in fact, are a consequence of the cheap money. So I think Wall Street is not going to get the unexpected tightening that they think they're going to have. But that what they are going to have is an even bigger increase in long-term interest rates than what they expect. And of course, ironically, instead of raising short-term rates to fight this pickup in inflation, the Fed is going to surrender to inflation. The Fed is going to actually create even more inflation to try to slow down the rise in rates by buying even more bonds, by printing even more money and expanding its balance sheet to an even greater extent because the Fed is very worried about an increase in long-term rates. Because as I said, we've got a 10-year yield now at 1.3. What's going to stop it from going to two? What's going to stop it from going to three? What's going to stop it from going much higher? Nothing other than the Fed. But how does the Fed stop it? Well, it's got to print a bunch of money and buy these bonds that nobody else will buy because people can see that inflation is picking up and they don't want to you know, ride the market down by watching their wealth dissipate in bonds. In fact, you can look at the yield on the tips, right? The supposed inflation-protected securities. So the yield on the... 10-year tip is minus 0.93%, right? That's the nominal yield. Of course, the real yield would be that yield plus inflation. But if you look at the yield on the 10-year U.S. government at 1.31, the real yield on that bond, right? If the 
tips are yielding minus 9.3%. That tells you that real yields are negative almost 1%. That is the real yield. Look at the 30-year. The 30-year tip has a yield of minus 0.11%, but the 30-year treasury is almost 2.1%. So the market is saying that inflation over the next 30 years is going to average 2.2%. And therefore, if you're buying a 30-year treasury at 2.09%, you are going to make no money uh, during the 30 years that you hold that bond. In fact, you're going to lose money because the yield is taxable. Unless you're, you know, you're buying the 30-year treasury in an IRA or a pension or something, if you actually buy that treasury and you get the nominal yield of 2.09%, you're going to pay income taxes on the the interest, and and then your negative yield is going to be even bigger. But of course, inflation is going to be much higher than what is built into the tip market, and of course, again, the yield on the tips doesn't actually reflect inflation it reflects the CPI because the tips are indexed to the CPI, not the actual rate of inflation. So I think real interest rates are actually much more negative than what is implied by the spread between treasuries and and tips. In fact, that's why I've always told people, if you want real inflation protection, don't buy the tips. It's like hiring the fox to guard your hen house. They're not gonna do a good job. The government lies about inflation the CPI is rigged. It is a lie. So if your only protection against inflation is to have your yield adjusted to reflect the CPI, then you're still going to lose. What you need to do is actually get out of dollars completely, don't own any treasuries, get real protection, and buy gold. But even if you believe the phony protection provided by the tips, you can see that real yields are already negative. And the point is that even if the Federal Reserve does surprise the markets and prematurely raises rates, even though they're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about doing it, they're not going to raise rates enough to bring yields positive. They are always going to be behind the curve. And this is extremely bullish for gold. That is what the markets don't get. Rising bond yields are bullish for gold because it reflects inflation. Inflation is good for gold. High inflation is better for gold. It's lousy for growth stocks. That's what people should be selling. And in the meantime, when you see a backup in interest rates, as the bond market goes down and yields go up, that just means the government, the Fed, is going to have to print even more money to slow the ascent of yields. Because if the Fed just backs off, interest rates are going to go way up. I mean, no question about that. And the economy can't survive it. The housing market can't survive it. The government can't survive it. Corporate America can't survive it. The Fed knows this. And of course, if rates keep backing up, at some point, the stock market is going to notice it too. And that's when the Federal Reserve gets really scared. So as interest rates go up, you know eventually the market's going to roll over. And then what's the Fed going to do as a result of that? They're going to print even more money. Who knows? They may even start buying stocks with that money they print. But What we do know is it's going to mean even more inflation. And so at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, and I think it's not too far off, the market is going to react to a falling bond market by buying gold, not dumping it. Meantime, look at the dollar. The dollar didn't go up today. I mean, the whole idea behind a weak gold market is this increase in interest rates. 
is going to be good for the dollar. It's going to strengthen the dollar and therefore gold's going to drop. Well, meanwhile, the dollar's not going up. The dollar index is 90.6. I mean, it was relatively flat, slightly higher on the day. Uh, but I mean, nothing big. I mean, there's, it's not like we've had this breakout in the dollar. The dollar is still trending down despite the increase in interest rates. Because again, this increase reflects inflation. It doesn't affect economic growth. And any higher GDP is simply going to be the result of Americans spending money that the Fed prints not money they earned by being productive. And I talked about that last week uh, with this massive increase in the trade deficit and all these container ships that are backing up off the coast of California because so much stuff is being delivered to Americans who aren't working and who are simply spending the money that the Fed is printing and they're about to get a lot more, which means they're going to spend a lot more. But do not confuse any of this with economic growth. And while I'm talking about people being confused, I can't ignore Bitcoin today trading above 50,000 for the first time ever. Probably not the last time, I guess, but who knows? Although we are back below it as I am recording this. But the high earlier today was better than 50,600 for the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm watching on CNBC and, you know, they're so excited about it. And they actually, you know, every guest that came on today was asked about Bitcoin. I was watching this interview uh, with the founder of Black Entertainment Television, who's now a big advocate, you know, of, of, of reparations and stuff like that. And, and he was saying all kinds of crazy things. And Joe Kernan was talking to him. And, you know, uh, he was saying that, you know, African-Americans, we need to really target a lot of money to African-Americans because that's where they need it the most. And, you know, we need to give money to people who need it the most. Right. Just like Karl Marx. Right. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. But I mean, Curtin totally let that comment slide. He couldn't wait to ask him the obligatory question. What do you think about Bitcoin? It's irrelevant what he thinks about Bitcoin. But somehow everybody that comes on CNBC is obligated to opine on Bitcoin. And of course, they're all steered in the direction, even though they don't own any Bitcoin and they haven't bought any Bitcoin, to try to somehow like validate it uh, and, and try to encourage other people to buy it. Because basically that is the, the, the main objective of the network now is to get as many people as possible to, to buy Bitcoin. But obviously a number of people did buy Bitcoin. Otherwise the price wouldn't have gotten above 50,000. But, you know, after it got above 50,000, it, it sold off. And I think it got down around 47,700 ish. Uh, and then now it's recovered. And as I'm recording this podcast, you know, we're back above 49,000. Uh, so we'll see who knows where it's going to be. Uh, by the time anybody listens to this. But yeah, I know I got a lot of egg on my face on the internet. I mean, I know I did say in the past or tweet in the past that I didn't think Bitcoin would make it to 50,000. Well, I was wrong. It made it to 50,000. Now, you know, I generally didn't say it was impossible. I just said it was not likely. It was improbable. And look, sometimes improbable things work. I mean, there are people that go to Vegas and they bet, they bet snake eyes on a crap table. I mean, it's a long shot, but every once in a while, somebody rolls, you know, snake eyes. And if you bet it, you know, you'll win. Uh, so, you know, I looked at this as more of a long shot, but I guess, you know, the odds were better than I thought. And, you know, we hit 50,000. All right. Well, now everybody's talking about 100,000. Now, again, I think that it's probably more likely that we hit 100,000 now that we hit 50 than I thought it was that we were going to hit 50 when we were still having a hard time getting back up to 20. So I would concede 
that it's possible that Bitcoin will go to 100,000. You know, you can't rule that out, but you also can't rule out the fact that it's going to zero. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. You know, and so if you buy it, you're gambling. And while it's possible that Bitcoin will go to 100,000, it is inevitable that it will go to zero, even if it goes to 100,000 first. I don't care. I don't care how big this bubble gets. It's a bubble. You know, and I am not, you know, joining everybody in, in, in crazy town and just trying to, you know, capitulate. And like, just because the price has gone up, that means I'm just going to forget everything I know and just panic into it. That ain't going to happen. I, I got nothing to panic about because I know eventually what's going to happen. And of course, what everybody thinks is going to drive Bitcoin to new heights is going to be all these institutions that are going to buy it because Tesla bought it, right? And now this is going to be the poster boy and everybody is going to follow in Tesla's lead, except Tesla stockholders are not benefiting from the crypto buy. Even though crypto is up quite a bit, I think Musk bought that Bitcoin at about 35,000. I don't know the exact price, but I think it's something like that. And now we're about 50,000. So that's a pretty healthy gain on a $1.5 billion uh, position. I guess he's ahead about a half a billion. I haven't done the exact math. But Tesla stock, despite Bitcoin hitting a new record high, Tesla stock dropped 2.5% today, which was a much bigger decline uh, than the S&P 500, uh, which barely dropped 0.06%, pretty much unchanged. The NASDAQ with more tech type stocks, that was down 0.3%. And you had um, Tesla down 2.5%. In fact, Tesla is now down better than 7% since it announced that it bought all that Bitcoin. So even though the price of Bitcoin has gone up, the price of Tesla stock has gone down. And so that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for other CEOs to load up their balance sheet with Bitcoin. Because even though Bitcoin has gone up, Tesla stock has gone down. Imagine what would have happened to Tesla had Bitcoin gone down instead of up. I mean, if Tesla went down, even though Bitcoin went up, imagine how much it would have gone down if Bitcoin went down. And I think that's what a lot of CEOs might be looking at before they you know, follow Elon Musk's lead uh, into crazy town and load up their balance sheet with, uh, with a bunch of Bitcoin. Now, of course, a lot of people want to say that, well, you know, the Bitcoin is up. So that was a good move on the part of Tesla to buy $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin because look how much it's worth. Sure, on paper, have they sold it? I don't know, probably not. Uh, but the key is going to be how much of that $1.5 billion do they have left when they ultimately sell those Bitcoin? I mean, you know, don't count your chips while you're still sitting at the table. And they're in a big casino when it comes to Bitcoin. And I have a feeling 
that getting rid of $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin or now maybe $2 billion worth of Bitcoin is going to be a lot harder than it was to buy it. If you're a business owner, you don't need me to tell you that running a business is tough, but you might be making it even harder on yourself than necessary. So don't let QuickBooks or spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. So you can stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need and more importantly, when you need it, ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software that you've already outgrown. Now's the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, your HR, your inventory, your e-commerce, and much, much more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously so whether you're doing a million or a hundred million in revenue you can save time and money with NetSuite you can join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com gold schedule your free product tour right now go to netsuite.com gold netsuite.com gold One way the U.S. government plans to artificially stimulate spending and GDP is through a $15,000 first-time homebuyer's credit, which is tucked into this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Now, I have no idea how much of that $1.9 trillion is budgeted from this uh, $15,000 tax credit. I'm sure the true cost of the program will far exceed any government budget, which is always the case because the government always fails to account for the moral hazard that their own legislation creates. And with respect to this $15,000 first-time homebuyer's credit, the moral hazard is going to be enormous, as will the opportunities for fraud. So they're going to be giving out a lot more $15,000 credits than they have budgeted. First of all, I haven't seen all the specifics. I don't even know if they have all the specifics yet. I think they just know that there's going to be some type of credit for so-called first-time home buyers, but I don't have all the details about how it's going to work. First of all, I haven't seen a definition of first-time home buyer because it's not going to be defined as the first time you're buying a house. I mean, the government has had programs like this in the past where you get some type of benefit for being a first-time home buyer, but it's never actually limited to people who are buying their first home. What they normally do is they define a first-time home buyer as somebody who has not purchased a home in the last three years or the last five years, something like that. So if you meet that criteria, then you're able to qualify for a credit that supposedly is for first-time home buyers, even though you could be a serial home buyer. In fact, you may have bought and sold many homes in the past. You just haven't done that lately. In fact, maybe you bought a home during the last real estate bubble and you lost it to foreclosure. And you know, and so you haven't bought one since. Well, you're ready to go for your $15,000 first-time homebuyer's credit. But there are a lot more problems than just allowing pretty much anybody who doesn't already own a home to qualify. And of course, you know, there are a lot of couples that live together where one person may have bought a home in the last three to five years, but the other person has not. So the home could always be purchased in the name of whomever qualifies to get this credit. And I'm not even sure, you know, what they qualify as a home. 
I mean, could you buy a mobile home and still get $15,000 credit? Because after all, I mean, a mobile home is going to be a lot less expensive uh, than a traditional home. And so $15,000 could be a much higher percentage of the actual value of that mobile home. And you may, what if you're buying a $30,000 mobile home and the government gives you $15,000? I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities for fraud if you're going to allow something like that. I mean, who knows? Maybe some people will claim that they're going to live in their car. Maybe you can get a credit for that. So I don't know all the details as far as what's going to qualify for a home. And is there some type of minimum appraised value that the home would have to have before you can qualify to get the $15,000? Of course, another problem with the whole thing is that it's unconstitutional. I mean, that's not going to matter. I mean, nobody really cares about the Constitution, but there's clearly nothing in the Constitution, and I've read it many times, that says that the federal government can give Americans money to use to buy homes. There's nothing in there about that. I mean, if Americans want to buy homes, then they need to be able to come up with the money. I mean, it's bad enough that the U.S. government is co-signing all the mortgages, right, basically guaranteeing uh, everyone's mortgage, which enables home buyers to borrow a lot more money and on much better terms than they could absent a government guarantee. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that they can do that. But now they want to move from not only guaranteeing the mortgage, but providing the down payment. Because what I do know about this program is the money is going to be accessible at the closing. So if you buy a house, when you go to close on that per purchase, you can immediately access, I guess, through the government, the $15,000, and you can apply that $15,000 towards your down payment or any other closing costs that may be associated with this purchase. And this is what's going to create the biggest moral hazard and the biggest opportunity for fraud because obviously too a lot of the sellers are going to know that the buyer is going to get this $15,000 and there's a lot of opportunity for buyers to simply charge higher prices for beat up homes to have some kind of deal with the buyer uh, to maybe split some of that money I mean all sorts of fraud houses that really have very little value I mean maybe people will end up buying houses don't even exist I don't know but the problem is then you're basically combining a government-guaranteed mortgage with a government-provided down payment. In other words, you take 100% of the risk from home ownership out of the buyer and you put it on the U.S. taxpayer. Not even on the lender, really. It's just on the U.S. taxpayer. And not necessarily the U.S. taxpayer, anyone who owns U.S. dollars, because it's not likely tax revenue that's going to make up for the losses it's going to be a printing press. They're going to print the money to recover all these losses. Now, the losses, of course, from this program are going to be enormous, right? This is one lesson that they did not learn, among others, from the 2008 financial crisis. Part of the problem with that crisis was that we made it too easy for people to gamble on real estate. We allowed nothing down loans. We allowed people to use teaser rates on adjustable rate mortgages to buy houses they couldn't afford. That was part of the problem. Now we want to recreate that environment, maybe to an even higher degree, because this is the deal that we're going to be offering Americans who do not now currently own a home, or maybe they own one home, but maybe the spouse has never bought one or hasn't bought one recently. And so now they can buy a second home to take advantage of this 
uh, risk-free speculation. But what you can do now, the government is telling you, hey, buy this house. It's not going to cost you anything. Right? You don't have to come out of pocket one nickel. Just sign here, and now you own a home. And you can take out an adjustable rate mortgage where you know the rate is very low. You don't have to worry about the rate going up in the future because who cares? I mean, if the rate goes up, well, just stop making the payments, right? I mean, you can move out. I mean, what's the point? I mean, under normal circumstances, if you actually have to put a down payment, right, you actually have to take your hard-earned savings and use that money to buy a house. When you're doing that, you don't want to lose the money that you worked so hard to save. So you're not going to commit to a mortgage that you may not be able to afford, right? So you're going to want to find a fixed rate mortgage that you know you can afford and then maybe buy a less expensive house so that you don't risk losing the down payment that you work so hard to save. But if you don't have to put anything down, if you've got nothing to lose, well then buy the biggest house that you can get approved for. And if you have to fund it with an adjustable rate mortgage, so what? Because now you get to live in a nicer house and if interest rates do go up in the future and you can't afford to make the payments, well, it's no big deal. That's not your problem anymore, right? You could just stop making your payments. In fact, the deal is actually better than that because let's say somebody is a renter right now, right? So they obviously, they're going to qualify for this program and they're paying rent. The government may actually give them a better deal where they can buy a condo, right? And put nothing down and then their payments on their adjustable rate mortgage could actually be less than what they're now paying in rent. So why not buy? Especially if you get out of your lease, you can get your deposit back. You know, usually when somebody uh, rents an apartment, they have to come up with last month, a security deposit. So you don't need any of that to buy a house under this program, right? So you get all your deposit money back, your last month rent, you put that in your pocket. And now you buy this house and buy in quotes because buy means you're actually spending money. You're not spending anything. You're just getting a free house thanks to the government. All you have to do is make the mortgage payments and then, you know, make the, the property taxes and, and, and the maintenance. But you're not actually required to do any of that because if you ever feel like not doing it, you just stop. Because one of two things are going to happen to that house that you got for free. One thing is the house goes up in value. Well, that's a windfall. Ka-ching, right? Potentially you sell it and you make a profit or maybe you take out a loan against the equity that just got built up in your free house. So you can't do that when you're renting. You don't have a free option uh, when you rent. That's basically what the government is giving everybody. It's a free call option on a house, but you get to live in the house. If the house goes up, you get to keep whatever profits, either again by selling the house or just taking out a loan against this equity that you got for nothing. On the other hand, what if the real estate market tanks? and the house goes down. Well, you don't lose anything. You didn't put anything down. Now, you have two choices. You can either continue to make the payments on the house, even though you're underwater, right? You owe more than the house is worth. You can keep on making those payments and hope the house, you know, the housing market improves and turns around, right? You could do that. Or you can decide, screw it. You know, I'm just going to stop making my mortgage payments, and while I'm at it, I'm not even going to pay my property taxes. And, oh, I'm not going to bother with all this small maintenance because who gives a damn? Because it's not really my house. The house belongs to the bank or the government. I'm just living here. You can decide to do that. 
And it probably will take the government two to three years, maybe more, to get you out of that house. I mean, especially if you complain, you know, I'm not making my mortgage payments because of COVID. I'm sick. I'm afraid to get sick. I don't know. Whatever kind of excuse you come up with, I'm sure they're not going to want to kick you out of your home if you're, you know, you're sick or you're worried about getting sick or something like that. So you have a very good chance if you take the government up on their program to get a free house that you may end up living in that free house for many, many years without having to come up with a nickel uh, in, in payments. And this, of course, is going to end up hurting the local community because if you're not paying your property taxes while you're sitting in that house, because what you know, what they're not going to do anything about it. They're probably going to wait for some type of foreclosure or something. I don't know how long it would take the county uh, to foreclose on a home because you're, you know, owe back property tax. It would probably just, you know build up on the home. So when the government finally kicked you out or the lender finally kicked you out and was able to foreclose, the property tax would come first. So it would just exacerbate the losses to the lender, which of course, the loans are all going to be guaranteed probably by the U.S. government anyway. So again, it's the taxpayer or the holders of U.S. dollars that end up losing under those circumstances. But in the meantime, this is going to fuel all sorts of demand for houses, and it is going to help push housing prices up because now you have all these buyers coming in to buy their free homes with government money. That enables some people who own the lower end homes to sell those homes to the so called first time buyer, and now they can trade up. They can take this money and use it to buy a more expensive home. So the whole real estate market b- benefits when you goose the lower end. With these, with these credits. So maybe they're hoping to really reflate a gigantic housing bubble. I mean, forget about how bad the last one was when it popped. They don't care about that. They just want bubbles because when you can't have legitimate economic growth, you know, bubbles will do when that's all you can inflate and that's all they can create by printing money. They don't get any real economic growth. They just can inflate asset prices. And to the extent that Americans could leverage those inflated asset prices by borrowing money, uh, then they can spend it. And as long as we're counting the spending and ignoring all the debt, we can all pretend that we have economic growth when actually all we have is inflation. But I also want to talk about the, the fundamental value of a down payment because, you know, this whole program of, you know, giving people $15,000 to buy a home, a lot of it is predicated on the fact that homes are so expensive. And therefore, it's hard for people to save up enough money for a down payment. Well, first of all, why are homes so expensive? One of the reasons is because of all these government subsidies. It's government guaranteed mortgages, artificially low interest rates that are the reason home prices are rising. So if the government stopped all this inflation, and in fact, if they got out of the business of guaranteeing mortgages, home prices would fall dramatically, and then it would be cheaper to buy them. And so you wouldn't need as big a down payment, right? It's the same thing with student loans. Why is college tuition so expensive? Because the government guaranteed the loans that the students took out, and that enabled them to borrow a lot of money that they couldn't ordinarily borrow. And then they took all that money and they bid up tuition. And now the government is directly loaning money to students to buy college and bid up tuition. Well, if those loans didn't exist, then the colleges would have to slash their prices and they'd have to cut costs to make that possible so they could actually have customers. Well, the same thing would happen with housing. Without all these government supports, houses would be a lot less money, at least the existing homes. 
right? The new homes, you know, a lot of that depends on the cost of construction, which is skyrocketing right now, which is another reason that these existing homes are more expensive because replacing them is getting more expensive. But the ones that are already here, if the government got out of the way, the prices would in fact come down. But there are some particularly important roles that the down payment has. And to the extent that the government can make it possible for people to buy homes without a down payment, that is a mistake. You can't simply say, oh, this is not a good situation because people don't have enough money to buy a house, so we need to let them buy houses without money. You have to realize how important it is to the whole process that the person buying the home have skin in the game. Number one, home ownership is expensive, right? Owning a home is more expensive than renting, right? Because when you own a home, you have to cover all the maintenance, all the things that go wrong. I mean, A, you buy insurance, but there, you know, there are deductibles and there are co-pays and not everything is insured. And there's a lot of expenses. So home ownership is not for everyone. Renting is much easier, right? You don't have crazy expenses. When you're a renter, you know what your expenses are, right? You have a rent, maybe it's $1,000 a month, that's your rent. Anything goes wrong with the property, it's your landlord's problem. Landlord's got to fix it. You don't have to fix it. You have a set amount of money that you have to pay. Right? The landlord deals with all the headaches. When you own the home, you're your own landlord. You deal with all the headaches. And all of a sudden, something goes wrong with that house and there's a major expense that comes up. You got to pay for it. Now, where do you get money to pay for unexpected expenses? Well, generally, you should get it out of savings. Right? So if you're a homeowner, you should also have savings that you can tap into in case something goes wrong with your home. The savings are not important or as important if you're a renter because you kind of have a known rent. I mean, maybe your landlord can increase your rent, but you know, not during the term of the lease. And generally when they increase the rent, I mean, it's you know, a certain percentage. Uh, and if it's too much, you can move out and look for another place. But when you can have unexpected large expenses, $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 expenses, you need to have savings to tap into. Well, one way to know if a potential home buyer is going to be able to have savings is to see if they've saved up enough money for a down payment because that shows that they're savers. They're going to be able to maybe afford to own the home. It's not just about affording to buy it. It's being able to afford to maintain it. That's key to home ownership. So if I'm a lender and I'm going to lend money to somebody to buy a house and you know they're only putting down 10 or 20%, right? And so I'm on the hook. If they don't pay, I want to make sure that they take care of that collateral. I don't want that home to get all run down because that's my collateral if they stop paying. So I have to know that these guys can save money. Uh, these guys will be able to maintain this property. So the fact that they were able to save up a down payment is a good sign that they're savers. They know how to live you know, beneath their means and, and they may be able to build up a, a rainy day fund to cover these, these expenses. But when you let people that have no savings, that have never saved a nickel, that are living paycheck to paycheck and don't have you know, two dimes to rub together, and you say, hey, you can buy a house. Well, what's the odds that if they couldn't save up money to buy a house, that they're now gonna be able to save up money to maintain that house. I mean, the only way they will be able to cover any of these expenses is if they can borrow the money somehow. Number two is skin in the game, right? You don't wanna give somebody a heads 
they win, tails you lose scenario, right? You want to make sure that people, A, are not going to buy more house than they can afford, and B, once they own the house, they are committed to not only repaying that mortgage, but maintaining the quality of that property. Why? Because they've got skin in the game. They saved up a down payment. It may have taken them years uh, to save it up. They don't want to lose it. They own that property. They have a vested interest. And of course, the down payment is the first to go, right? You take the first loss. So let's say you buy a house and you put 10% down and the house goes down 20% and then it gets sold. You lose 100% of your down payment. The bank, right, if they loaned you 90% and they foreclose and they get back 80%, well, they lost 10%, right? Or if they loaned you $500,000, let's say, to buy the house and, and you put up uh, 50 or something like that and the house is only worth 400000 when they sell it, you lose your entire 50000 the bank loses 50,000 of their 500. So the bank loses 10%. You as the borrower, you lose 100%, right? Because you are on the hook for the initial decline. So when you put up a down payment, a decent down payment, you have a vested interest in maintaining that property. And the lender knows it, right? You guys are kind of partners because you both see risk. Now the bank ultimately has more risk because you know, you've got to put there because if the house goes down by 50%, well, mail in the keys, right? I mean, you know, you don't have to, the bank is, is out of luck there, right? Or the taxpayer. But if you put nothing down, then you're not in partnership with that bank at all. I mean, you, you don't have anything to lose if that property goes down. Now, on the other hand, You've got something to gain if the property goes up. In fact, you've got everything to gain if the property goes up. If the property goes up, you keep all the gain. The bank, the lender doesn't get any of it, right? If a bank loans you $500,000 to buy a house and you put up 50 or whatever, and then the house goes to a million and you sell it, all you got to do is give the bank back the 500 that they loaned you. You keep the other 500 profit. That's all your money, right? So you get everything if the house goes up. And now with this $15,000 down payment, obviously, I guess you can't buy a $500,000 house with $15,000 down. I don't know. Hope not. I mean, but maybe you could buy a two hundred dollars or $300,000 house uh, with that down payment. But probably the house ain't worth that. But they'll probably inflate the value because they know you're going to get the, the, uh, the government money to help you know, close it. But the point is you get all the upside and you get none of the downside. At least with a decent down payment, you get some of the downside. And therefore that's going to cause people to be more likely to pay the mortgage, maintain the value of the house, right? And, and think twice before they commit to something they may not be able to afford. But you give somebody a situation where they're gambling with the house's money from day one, literally, right? They're going to take it. That is a huge moral hazard. So everybody can buy the house. Nobody needs any money. And everybody has a free uh, call, right? If the house goes up, everybody wins. And meanwhile, you can borrow against it. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people who got this $15,000 to buy a house, as soon as the home closed and they got it, maybe they can go right to the bank and take out a home equity loan and actually borrow that $15,000 right out. For all I know, that's what's going to happen. So not only do they get the free house, but they get the cash to boot to spend it on whatever they want. 
And the whole idea that the government should give people money to buy houses makes no sense. I mean, why should they do that? Nobody has a right to own a home. Why not just rent a home if you can't afford to buy rent? In fact, for most Americans, renting is a better deal than buying. But the government now is going to try to discourage people from renting when renting is probably a better, more economical choice for them. And instead, it's encouraging them to do something that under normal circumstances they would not do. You're always going to have the best outcome if market forces determine which option you choose. The minute the government comes in to distort your decision by favoring one particular uh, choice over another, well, then you're no longer making the optimal choice. And, and this is what the government's doing by encouraging a lot of people uh, to buy houses they can't afford, to commit to payments they can't make, all because uh, they've you know skewed this playing field where they got this free option and ability to make money and borrow money. Again, remember, you don't have to sell your house. So if you live in one of these free houses that you got, to the extent that it appreciates, you can borrow money and you can keep living there and you can keep on borrowing as the price of the house is going up, right? You can keep on taking out more loans. And then when it eventually comes crashing down, if that's what happens, well, you don't have to give back any of that money. Right? And in fact, what happened during the last uh, crash, and this is something that I forecast was going to happen before it happened is that a lot of these people who end up having their homes foreclosed on before the bank actually takes over or the government, whoever ends up getting the house, they gut the place. They start ripping out whatever's nailed down. I mean, they take out the appliances. They take out the countertops. They, they take out the, the copper, right? Look at the copper. Look at the plumbing. They can sell that stuff, right? A lot of this stuff has value because after all, people look at it, hey, I own this home. I could do whatever I want with it. I could put, you know, all the, uh, uh, the stuff that I own for sale. I can list it all on eBay. Hey, you, you know, you need any uh, faucets, you know, you, you know, plumbing, you know, whatever you need, you know, I'll sell it. And so, you know, you end up, the bank gets the house back and there's nothing there. It's just, you know, walls, you know, or, you know, maybe they even take that out and it's just a facade, you know, or just the outside of the house. Or I guess you could, if it, you know, you could take off the shingles if it's a wood house. I don't know. Uh, but a lot of this stuff ends up happening. Uh, and especially when people have lived in the house for many, many years without making any repairs, it's dilapidated anyway uh, by the time the lender actually gets what's left of his collateral back. So the bottom line on all this is that the government wants to recreate all of the conditions that helped inflate the bubble that popped in 2008. Actually, I think it popped in 2005 and which led to the 2008 financial crisis. In fact, I just read that it was just now, I mean, maybe within the last week or two, that national home prices finally finally took out the high that was established in 2005. That was really the peak of the last bubble, even though it didn't blow up really until 07. That's when the subprime blew up. But of course, after subprime blew up, they tried to tell us not to worry, right? It was contained to subprime. The rest of the market imploded in 2008. Well, we finally exceeded that peak. And that's before we've got this new program. So we've got these rock bottom adjustable rate mortgages. And even though the yields, as I stated earlier, are rising on you know 10-year and 30-year, which means that mortgage rates for a 30-year fixed are likely going up, the Federal Reserve has got short-term rates at zero, right? So that means the arms are not budging at all 
And as long-term rates move up and as housing prices continue to move up uh, due to these dynamics and inflation, more and more people are going to fall into that tender trap of the adjustable rate mortgage. They're going to have no other way to buy a house they can't afford other than with an adjustable rate mortgage. And of course, without a down payment to lose, who cares, right? They're going to roll the dice when they're playing with the house's money.